Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Ah, uh, consternated. Consternate? Why consternated? <laughs> I believe that I believe that's a new adjective, and I'm I'm quite, I'm quite proud of having used it. Uh, so I'm, I've I've complained about my computer issues. So I'm actually thinking about getting an iMac, which is you know by all accounts a great computer. And I realize over the last couple of years I'm traveling less than I was before. I'm actually getting a lot more done at my desk, and even when I leave to to pick up my daughter from school or whatever it might be, I'm I'm often coming back instead of bringing my computer with me like I used to. So in some respects, it makes more sense. And I've already you know did my little you know complain about the 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 <laughs> the laptop situation but the issue is i was pricing out an imac and if i get an imac i'm probably gonna have it for a long time right so mm. i've always adopted the philosophy of like max everything out now except for me maxing the processor out is not really Im- important at all the only processor intensive work i do is this podcast exporting mm. it and that happens like once a week the, the, <laughs> the problem is that i'm pricing this out and it turns out that if you want to go from 32 gigabytes to 64 gigabytes ram which is totally unreasonable and i don't really need it but i love ram so i, I want to do it and, you know you just do it up front and and, and by the way I, I can't i, I don't want to hear about i can buy memory kits separately and all that sort of stuff i, I don't I, i'd rather not deal with it it was in theory you have to move up to the mid-level model, which means you have to pay an extra $5,000, uh, sorry, Taiwanese dollars, like a, an extra $180 or whatever it is to get a faster processor in order to have the privilege of upgrading your memory. Mm-hmm. I, Bad I mean, enough, right? Yeah, I, that is, this sounds like a pretty quintessential Apple thing to it do. Is, it is. Well, it gets worse because it, the memory I could always buy it externally, right? So I could work around that one. But... If you want to upgrade the hard drive to a two terabyte SSD, I have a one terabyte currently, and it's mostly full. And again, I could do external drives, but all that you know rigmarole and all sort of thing. I think just having one big one is is a great way to go. You have to upgrade to the highest level processor and the highest level graphics card, which means a premium of about five hundred dollars in order to have the privilege of paying Apple an extra $1,000 for the biggest hard drive. So basically, if you want to max out, if you don't care about process, you don't care about graphics, but you want to max out the hard drive and memory, mm. it costs you like $2,500 or some ridiculous price to go all the way top. I mean, Apple's ability to maximize their their sort of average selling price, whatever for user, is is unprecedented. I mean, I, I, I'm simultaneously just appalled and kind of want to clap my hands. It's like, yeah. it's, 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 it's so impressive. I, I was going to say, we need to invite a specialist onto the show show to talk you through your problems but i actually don't think they'd be able to help it's almost like we need to get someone from apple product here but then again i even before i suggest that i i think the hint is there like as a user it's frustrating but as an analyst it's really kind of impressive how they managed to get you to keep spending money and spending money and spending money right oh yeah it's clearly on purpose right mm-hmm. because they, they have multiple ways to get you to buy a higher level model like if you mm-hmm. want a faster processor that's a very straightforward one but also if you want more memory around I mean, it's totally arbitrary which is i mean this has always been apple right i mean i i uh i perhaps i'm slightly embarrassed to admit it but i may have been an owner of a black plastic macbook which basically costs 150 dollars more just for the color and it was totally worth it uh but i mean that's you also got a slightly larger hard drive i believe which was user replaceable by the way so you didn't actually have to do it but yeah but i mean it, this is something that you know, Apple has always been good at, and to some respects, I think has gotten even better at, particularly in the last year or so. And that is increasing basically their average revenue per customer. Mm-hmm. And, and they've done this in multiple ways. They've done this through obviously the phones have increased in price. The iPhone 8 was is up by $50, the iPhone 10 is a thousand dollars. And interestingly, there's a couple of interesting like background points to this, which is the 
the eight is almost certainly higher because memory prices are higher, or significantly higher. And so their mar their margin is actually it's not like their margin is getting a big a big push up. Like that's just to maintain the margins that they have. Mm. And according to the the IHS, I think that's what they are. The the the, the uh, research firm that always does the pricing breakdown of the iPhone 10. It turns out the iPhone 10 is is actually it might have a slightly lower margin than the iPhone 8. Like all the all that stuff in there actually costs a whole bunch of money, especially the screen where Samsung is the only company that's capable yeah. of building them and they they like have Apple's paying something like I believe they said like $110 per screen in the iPhone 10 whereas the the screen the iPhone 8 only costs 50. Like I mean that's that I mean, that that's a pretty significant jump. But the Big picture, Apple is still increasing the revenue per iPhone customer, even if, you know, leaving aside the, the, the margin issues. It's interesting. I, they're almost unique in like their determination to maintain margins. And I, I mean, I, when I was in Australia, it used to frustrate me no end because they would adjust the prices of the computers when the currency would fluctuate. And again, preserving margins. But from a user perspective, you would be so frustrated. It would be like, come on, guys, just wear it. Stop making this stuff more expensive. But yeah, like the memory, the memory thing, if, if you're looking to preserve margins, it makes sense to put the price up. And it's crazy how, um, yeah, memory prices, memory's just been constrained and the prices have gone up recently. It's unusual that it, it jumps like that. And Apple's actually spending a ton on its suppliers, basically right. like buying plants for them and buying equipment for them to make more memory, to make OLED screens, to do all this sort of stuff. You can see how it pays off. I mean, that that $55 or $60 premium spread out over, you know, 100 million phones is is it's $6 billion. Like that that's in in one year. That's a huge it's a huge amount of money that justifies this sort of upfront payment. Oh, but but one more thing, that's not the only way Apple is increasing revenue per user. I mean, there's there's other, so obviously they've always done the sort of computer upgrade rigmarole thing where mm. you, you kind of get foxed into a higher model. Like that's like Apple's been amazing at that since day one. Uh, where amazing is in <laughs> attach the Depend- attach the adverb of your of your choice to to, to characterize the way in which you want to Dep- hear, hear depending on that. whether the user or the analyst hat is on i guess right so but but from an iphone perspective so one they're just straight up raising prices on the iphone and they are also with with the memory kind of they've always kind of jiggered around with the storage how much storage is available to kind of like they had that terrible 16 gigabyte option for ages and ages and ages that kind of forced you to go up and now they've rejiggered it again where it's a hundred and fifty dollar premium but you get the larger memory and i suspect a lot of people were going in that middle stage and now they bump it up and people are more likely to upgrade or they can capture more of them it'd be very curious i'm sure they've done tons of calculations on how they can sort of maximize that Mm. that upgrade pricing within the iphones but also they've increased their average revenue not just per unit but their average revenue per customer by selling things like airpods right Uh i mean an iphone is really it's a so much a better of a better experience if you buy airpods like we've both raved about them it's an incredible product but apple is also it's now gone. So you buy an iPhone 10, a base level iPhone 10, and you spend a thousand dollars, and then you buy AirPods. Apple's average revenue per user has now increased by an additional one hundred and fifty dollars, and that's like materializing out of thin air for out of like money that they didn't capture previously. This always starts to make me nervous. Like, I, I mean, and we've talked about this a bunch in terms of disruption and, and low-end disruption and uh, moving up market. Uh, in fact, as we often mention, like a, a conversation around that is how this all got started and their ability to create a fantastic experience 
is part of the reason why they've been able to uh, resist that for so long and resist it from the perspective of Android. And uh, they've done a phenomenal job at it. But anytime you start making more and more money out of your best customers, it's still, I can't help but feel that it leaves you exposed to something else coming along underneath. And like that gap gets bigger and bigger for someone to move in underneath with something that's less powerful that maybe begins looking like a toy. And people are like, well, you know what? I can't afford to spend $1,200, $1,300 to get this amazing experience. What about this instead? Oh, and don't forget the $350 for an Apple Watch. Yeah, right? <laughs> but no, that, that's exactly it. And that, that was, that's, that's a really great framing for what I wrote about this week, which to be honest, I, I'm – it's one of those things I try to put in my my doubts in there, but I almost feel like I, I, I came up more absolute than I sort of feel, if that makes sense. Like mm. th- this is a issue, this issue of Apple and disruption that it, it's it's very much a knife's edge. But but I and, and how can I say that when I wrote you mentioned that article a few years ago uh, where I was very unequivocal that Apple will be fine, and that's why it's useful to go back to disruption, go back to disruption theory, and that. You know, it's kind of starting with the innovator's solution, which was Professor Christian's second book. He kind of delineated between two different types of disruption. And one is uh, new market disruption, which is classic disruption where something comes along and uh, cr- creates a new market. And that is the traditional toy. It's like uh, people dismiss it at first, but it comes along and it finds an underserved population and uh, moves up market as a result of that. And the other and the classic one, example is the, is, the, is the smartphone versus the PC, right? The right. smartphone seemed like a toy, seemed like a smaller thing than the PC. Microsoft sort of built their smartphones to be appendages to the PC. But, it, but, but what happened was there was a new market and then it, it rapidly went up market and capabilities and attracted all the customers away from the PC, mm. such that the PC is still there, but it's a shrinking market. It's not, mm. you know, it, and and more not just a shrinking market in terms of unit sales. It's even it's also a shrinking market in terms of attention and the, the time people spend there. And that and that played itself out inside the 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 computing uh, era time and time again, whether it was mainframes to mini computers and mini computers to PCs. And there is still IBM still has like a reasonable business selling mainframes to people who still need them. But of course, it's been completely overtaken by well, it was completely overtaken by PCs, and then phones have completely overtaken PCs. And I think that's another important distinction to make that because these things aren't always like one to one replacements. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense right because the so the, there are still mainframes sold to your point what happened was they were it's all the growth goes to the disruptor and yeah. the incumbent is kind of stuck but then over and that's fine for a while but eventually the incumbent then inevitably starts to decline just because that that almost that generation that valued that and used that and the use cases start to die off yeah and so then it dies off itself and i think P, the pc right now is kind of like you know, it, it is slowly declining and it stayed stable for a while. Growth was halted and the smartphone took off and it's, oh, it's still there. It's still there. It's, oh, it starts to go down. And you, you could see this first from a, from a use perspective. Mm. Uh, I wrote about this, uh, I think about a year ago, but this idea where the amount of time spent on the PC actually, everyone's like, oh, the phone's killing the PC. No, the PC actually kept its share of time for a good three, four years after we were well into the smartphone era. But about a year or so ago, the actual amount of time per day on a PC started to decline. That And, and so there's like, it's not like a, it immediately flips the switch. There's like this plateau area mm-hmm. when you've been superseded, but that means the decline is is 
you know, it's coming sooner than you think. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the topic that we talked about last week, I think it was, where you see all the interesting stuff continuing to grow up the stack. And it doesn't mean that everything below on the stack suddenly disappears. Uh, it's just that, that the growth ends up coming above. And that has flow-on effects. Like if you're if you're an organization trying to attract talent and trying to innovate, it becomes that much harder because people want to go where the growth is. That's a great and point. It, yeah, and like if uh, from from a development point of view, like you start to see the really interesting applications being built on the top of the stack. Like Instagram, for example, it's an afterthought making it work on a PC browser. Like where all the action is is where the attention is and where the growth is, which is on the new platform. And these things start adding up and mean that that that, that you can pl- you'll plateau for a while, but inevitably it declines and it just becomes harder and harder to maintain a business in in one of those elem- in one of those areas that's not at the forefront. Then the second sort of disruption, just to delineate these two, because mm. I think this is really important, I think, to understand the, sort of what, we, what, what we're going to talk about this week. So the first is that new market disruption, which is the new mm. kind of product based on new technology that steals sort of the, the use case away over time. And, but the second one is very different, which is the, the low-end disruption. This is, honestly, this is the one that I've actually always been a little bit more skeptical of it is basically it it has to do with the uh, the play of integration and modularity and it basically says and the part that i definitely like integration and modularity and understanding that is absolutely essential and i completely buy into this which is when markets start out the integrated player ends up doing best because they have control of all the pieces but as a market develops historically it tends to be the modular players that do better because they figure out how all the pieces fit together and then they divide the world up and optimize their own little bit and having people in it having players in an ecosystem focusing on improving their own little bit actually results in in a better product overall it drives prices down faster there's more competition and so on and this is where uh, I mean, it definitely played. There were other uh, there were other things that were impacting it in the PC era. When you look at how uh, Windows played out against Mac, for example, and we've litigated that. But yeah, I, I, don't, if you bring that up, I'm gonna I'm gonna argue with you about it. So don't bring it up. I I, I didn't. I I like we're just just going straight <laughs> straight up from the record. That. Yes, indeed. But um. Like you can see it, it's not playing out with the phone. And part of the reason that it's not playing out in the phone market is Apple's continually finding areas in which having integration across the hardware and software enables them to deliver an even better experience than they otherwise would able to be, otherwise able to provide and you see the android the 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 players in the android ecosystem struggling to keep up because i mean if things were neatly divided as they were perhaps in the pc world it and and it like performance was only driven by uh, processor speed, uh, memory speed, graphics card speed, and like the software on top of it, and everybody played in their respective areas. M- maybe it would be different, but you're buying an integrated widget that sits on in your pocket and is one of the things that you use most often. And you see it with things like Face ID or Apple's uh, Apple's plain augmented reality being across both the hardware and software allows them to keep innovating at such a rate, and the experience keeps growing that you haven't really seen the same effect play out in the phone market. 
and this was the core of that article that we always reference again, again mm. it's in the show notes again. But but this was the core, and I'm glad you I'm glad to hear you say that you've always been skeptical of this because I, I might I say that when we discussed this article four years ago, you were far less skeptical than than, than you are today. But, but yeah, and that is you're right to call me on that. I, I am I am. Hey, most... I, I gave you a ton of credit for being right about the Facebook thing. No, 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 right. and yeah, yeah, yeah. So and I excuse me, I'll be right back. I'm gonna take a celebratory lap. I'll be, you I'll be, I'll be you back deserve the celebratory lap. I I think. My my skepticism around that derived from the fact that way back when we had that conversation, I didn't see how Apple could improve things beyond just like battery life or maybe screen size. Like I didn't see the things like Face ID. I didn't see the things like augmented reality. And I also or like Touch didn't... ID, which hadn't come yet, and now is already gone. Yeah, or, or the, and honestly, I and it's ironic because I've always appreciated this most about the Apple products, but discounted it because it didn't seem to play out in the PC era. I didn't appreciate the importance of the experience and how in this particular market versus the previous one, it was going to allow Apple to maintain a very real and very profitable segment of the market. And it, they they wouldn't be subject to the modular players coming along and taking them out. Yeah, so just to go back to this article, the, there was a, a few art, a few pieces that I put forward, and, and what's interesting, and the reason why we're making this very clear distinction in the in about disruption is because I made this. I actually made this distinction in this article where I said there's there's two types of disruption that have been defined. There's new market disruption and low end disruption. And I said, like you, I totally buy into the new market disruption idea. Like I think that that's right. It's correct. And I'm like, the, but all the criticism that Professor Christensen has about Apple's business is rooted in low end disruption. And specifically, it was that theory that I had an issue with when it came to a few different circumstances. So a few things was that, number one, this presumption of rationality in the buyers, where they're just going to – basically that the buyers are all going to have a sort of feeds and speeds approach. They're just going to list up all the things, put the price next to it, and then make a decision. And my my feeling is, one, buyers – there's either two outcomes. Either one, they're not rational, which I kind of reject. My preferred response to that is – they are rational, but what goes into the decision making is a number of factors that can't be quantified and put on yes. a spreadsheet. And yes. that's things like the user experience. Like they care about stuff like that, or they care about having an Apple store where they can bring it in more easily. Or they it just like, works. Yeah, just works. Like there's all sorts of stuff that goes into a buying decision, particularly for consumers that 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 does not necessarily ma- ma- matter otherwise. And and the blue one bubbles. thing that I don't noticed, forget blue bubbles. Fucking yeah, no, excuse my language. It, it, I hate <laughs> green bubbles. Don't send me messages that have green bubbles. <laughs> no, but it, 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 it it's really important. And, and the thing that I noticed is that a lot of Professor Christensen's examples of disruption were almost all in B two B products, mm. where there was a dedicated buyer, where the buyer was not the user of the product. And, it, and it, if you have that separation between buyer and user, the buyer, by definition, is going to undervalue the entire experience of using mm. the product and overvalue all the things that go into making a, a decision. They have to go to the board, they have to go to the CEO, to justify why we're going to make this big purchase. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a game of telephone, right? The more links there are in that chain, where you have to communicate why you need to buy something the more concrete things will matter because they they will survive going through the telephone, right? But if you're buying for yourself, you can actually value things like, I like that it's black or I like blue bubbles or it feels good in my hand. Mm-hmm. How do you commu- – like it almost feels – I, I recorded the talk show with, with uh, John Gruber this week, and mm-hmm. we, we were having a discussion about this on, on the podcast about there's these aspects of the iPhone 10, which I think we'll talk about a little bit, but you almost feel dumb articulating why you like it because it sounds so 
ethereal and like just kind of made up. But that like those are also the aspects of it that are the most meaningful to me as a user, mm. even though I, I have no idea how to articulate why it is that I like it. Yeah, it's it's so hard sometimes. It's so hard to put your finger on what it is that delights you. And I I mean, I share your experience of using that new phone. I think I think there are some elements about it that are just delightful. It's fantastic. And my my initial reaction is I love it. I love like the the Face ID integration with uh notifications for example where it lets you know something has happened but it doesn't give you the content of what's happened until you look at the phone and unlock it is just the most delightful little feature that you didn't even realize that you wanted until you use it and then it's like this makes so much sense like I'm getting told something's there but I nobody else can see it until I look at the phone and unlock the phone it's like so nice. And also, I mean, the, the other thing that, that I didn't say in this article, but but the is just the new interface, which has a ton of rough rough edges to be queried. There's things I think it's gonna it needs to be iterated on. And this is sort of like I the reason I'm saying that, like you said, your initial reaction is I love it, and then kind of your mental your mind kicks in. It's like, oh, but I should be queer that it's not perfect and all that sort of yeah. stuff. But uh-huh. but that's almost the, the reaction you want, right? You want it to be, oh, I love it. Oh, well, well, you know, there's this sort of thing where this sort of gut speaks before the mind speaks, mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense, and the mind sort of kicks in. But th- this interface where you're swiping stuff around, it has to be perfect. Like, it's on such a nice edge. If there was any sort of lag or any sort of lack of responsiveness, which, by the way, is the single thing that still frustrates me about Android, including even the absolute latest phones, is that you just if, if there's any sort of leg in in this sort of graphical performance that the entire interface would fall apart Mm -hmm. like it it would be so frustrating to have this swipe if that swipe was ever delayed for even a microsecond and and that in how do you pull that off by having all this stuff so tied in together and can you put that in a spreadsheet i mean let's go measure the response and what's the failure rate it's a feeling it's a feeling and it's really hard to articulate yeah, and who's going to pay $100 for a couple of milliseconds, a 30 millisecond response time difference? Like you, when you try and put that into a spreadsheet, it, it almost, it, it, it lends itself to ridicule almost. And I mean, this has historically been one of the things that the feeds and speeds people will focus on. Like they will almost ridicule you for valuing these things. But when you use them and when they are important to you, you wouldn't trade them for anything. They're like fantastic. And so this was real. This was really got into the, the why I thought the low end instruction didn't apply here because it, it, being a consumer market is really that ma- main thing. And and this idea that rationality of the buyer can't be reduced to what fits on a spreadsheet. You know, every mm. attribute that matters can't be documented necessarily. The example I use in this article I think is actually pretty useful. So I'm I'm going to kind of reuse it. So one thing you learn in business school is you know generally. Generally, it's generally accepted, although it's interesting to see this sort of shift in sort of the real market, but that it's almost it's always better to partner than to buy, for example, because what happens is there's a trade-off between the cost of sort of market transactions between firms versus the cost of administering the same activities internally mm-hmm. and and also generating that sort of competition among providers and stuff where they can they should in mm. theory compete with each other to improve the product and provide lower prices but there's there then you have to actually do the transaction with them there's that there's that transaction cost whereas if something's internally it's argue it should at least in theory be easier to sort of coordinate and and align things if, if that yep. makes sense but but you know in general you're better off doing it externally and without and not paying that sort of 
penalty and premium when it comes to doing it internally. Yeah, this is this is one of my frustrations with this business school type advice, which is people like to be prescriptive as opposed to try and understand the circumstances under which it makes sense. And I think you just drove at that exactly then, which is if you understand where all the barriers or, or, or all the boundaries lie and you know exactly how to do this, then going out to the market makes a heap of sense. You don't need to, you don't, you don't need to have things in house, but where you don't understand where that's going to be or it's constantly shifting because you're creating new products or whatever, trying to do that across organizational boundaries and trying to build it in contractually that you'll do things like you, you can't contract for things you don't understand, but the nature of innovation is that you need to do things that you don't yet understand. And so understanding the circumstances where in-house versus out-of-house or the nature of that relationship is absolutely essential. I completely agree. And this is a really great example of this because that's one of the things I was getting at here because actually I think the entire premise of this of this sort of textbook teaching is wrong because it goes back to my original point. The only costs considered are financial costs. It's how do you balance off the transaction costs versus the internal integration costs and costs, 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 costs. Mm. But all those costs are, are dollars. What about the cost in the user experience? Mm-hmm. What about the cost in having to coordinate not just a supply chain, not just moving things around, which by the way, I've noted before, Apple's super modular in their supply chain, right? So they, they are actually taking advantage of all this sort of stuff. But when it comes to these other aspects, how do you measure the cost of getting a OEM to work with an operating system? And, and, and you, even down to like Samsung's in, in, in Korea and Google is in Mountain View and you have to find a time with time zones where you can actually coordinate and work on something. Obviously, there's lots of ways to work around that, but it's a very sort of like concrete, easy to understand challenge that is inherent in two different companies trying to build a user experience jointly. This extends well beyond user experience, though. Like one of the things that fascinated me for like, I I find airplanes quite interesting. And Boeing traditionally, before they launched a new model of airplane, would would prototype it all in-house. They would build everything. And then once they understood how all the components fit together, they would then engage with uh, outsourced suppliers to like, okay, we need these wings done like this, this engine done like this. And they, uh, I mean, someone probably, very intelligent looking at a spreadsheet thought well think about all the money we could save if we just got other folks to end up doing the prototyping for us and they were not only launching an all-electric plane they were doing it with composite materials two things that they'd never done before and the 787 ended up so late with so many problems for exactly this reason because they didn't know where the boundaries lay and you had all these different organizations trying to build various pieces and they didn't know how it was all going to fit together together and they were trying to figure out contracts and who was responsible for what. And it just ends up as a giant disaster. That's exactly right. And so when you take all these together, and that falls back into the entire experience, right? And you take all these factors together, this was the core of my argument. I don't think that the I don't think that the iPhone is threatened by cheap Android. And mm. it's it, and it's not going to be threatened because people who buy the iPhone, one, it's not it's not like it's the whole market. It's so easy to think about the like the if you think about the market as the average consumer, it's meaningless because there is all kinds of different consumers in the market. I mean, I, I 
people, for example, that are starting subscription sites often come talk to me. I was just having this conversation with someone who, who's, who's doing a, a one-person subscription site like Shatekri. And one of the things I impressed upon him is you cannot think about – he's like doing surveys like that. I'm like, I'm like you cannot consider the response of, the, of your market as a whole or your Twitter followers as mm. a whole or whatever it might be because there is some segment of your population that just will never, ever pay for anything, period. And to even consider them in your sample of like what you should price or whatever is actually going to pollute your sample because they are never even in your addressable market to begin with. So first you have to separate who are the people that might ever be willing to pay from the people that will never pay no matter how much you charge. Mm. And, and and then within that market, you can start to try to understand them. But, the, it, it, but you see this happens often. You see the iPhone. If you think about the average consumer, there's now like billions of people with phones. That means including everyone in all these countries at all income levels, at all willingness to pay, at all preferences. In that case, the average consumer almost certainly, we know this by the numbers, prefers a cheaper phone. Mm-hmm. But but that actually tells you nothing mm-hmm. about the long-term sustainability of a high-end phone amongst people who are actually willing to pay that. Totally. That notion of, of hiding behind averages and the mistakes people make when hiding behind averages and getting in, inside and understanding, and it sounds almost obvious, but understanding that an average is made up of discrete segments and understanding the segments is critical. But what you're talking about is also one of the things that I think is a really big difference between Apple competing in the PC era and Apple competing in the internet era, which is the nature of distribution has changed where in the PC era when software was being shipped around in boxes, if you didn't have a critical mass at each geographic location, people wouldn't even stock software for the computer that you'd bought. And then you felt like a fool trying to go to the store and buy software. And because people wouldn't stock Mac software, people wouldn't make Mac software and so on and so forth. Whereas you look at it now and the internet has rolled everybody up in the same way that a subscription site is now possible because your addressable market is the 7 billion people on the planet. It's kind of the same way with software where it's all electronically distributed. It rolls everybody up. And so no longer are you playing this game of market share by percentages. You're playing a game of absolute numbers. And uh, uh, when you when the absolute number, the starting point is 7 billion people, it's easy to find a very big market, even if it ends up being a tiny populate percentage of that. That's exactly right. So Apple, the, the argument is Apple has this hole in the top end of the market. These people value value integration in that they value the user experience. They're the, they're the user and the buyer is the same person. They're not going to go anywhere. And, and, and not only that, that's even before you get into the lock-in effects that Apple has by having their own operating system, by apps being built on top of that that only work on their operating system. This is arguably even more of an issue on the Mac side, as I noted previously, which is why I'm considering this, this you know, barbaric pricing that Apple is, is imposing on me. <laughs> but why? Because, well, I mean, we're repeating ourselves. Apple has a monopoly on OS 10. They have a monopoly on iOS. And it's not like a legal monopoly, but from it's a user experience monopoly. And this gets into the advantage of building on the user experience. So, like, because it can't be measured, because it can't be put in a spreadsheet, you can't be sued for it either. That's a pretty, that's a pretty nice side effect. 
It absolutely is. But nevertheless, I, I want to reach back to where we started, which is your point about they are increasing the average uh, revenue per customer, and they absolutely are. They're doing it through services. They're doing it through hardware. They're selling not just a phone. You're buying the AirPods, maybe the watch. You're starting to get up to some pretty big numbers. And we've discussed why low-end disruption might not be applicable, but I still think that this doesn't in any sense make them immune from new market disruption. In fact, I almost think it makes them more susceptible to it. That's exactly right. And, and again, just to, as I noted, in this article, I'm like, I am absolutely on board with new market disruption. And I was clearly attacking low-end disruption. And that was the distinction I tried to draw in this article this week, is this article was actually about how vulnerable is Apple to new market disruption? Because again, new market disruption is going to be a different technology that comes along on the side and originally lives kind of alongside of it as the phone lived alongside the PC. Mm. But then over time is going to creep up, creep up until it starts taking sort of share, whether it be unit share or mind share or attention share or whatever it might be from the incumbent. And in the case of the phone, you know, we've talked about this a a ton of times. Have you seen the movie Her yet? (laughs) <laughs> I started watching it, and then I was like, ah, I can't. It's going to ruin I, I, the show I want to preserve, you I want to, I want to preserve the joke, right? <laughs> no, but it's clearly it's these sort of voice interfaces, these these sort of these omnipresent sort of interfaces. And, you know, to I think we've already seen, we've discussed it in the context of the home, where the home is so – what's compelling about it is that's the one place where your phone is not in your pocket mm-hmm. because that's the one place you have to plug it in, right? The batteries are still perhaps not as great as, as you'd like them to be. And and whereas just be able – and it's also the one place where you don't feel weird about just talking out in the middle of nowhere because it's your own house. Who cares what you, mm-hmm. what, what you do in your own house? And, and, so, uh, and so Amazon has been very – very aggressive, and Google is now you're seeking to challenge Amazon, and Apple still hasn't shipped in their, their, their competitor. And even when their competitor ships, it's going to have very limited sort. It's not going to be much of a platform or ecosystem. It, you know, they're going to layer it on very, very, very slowly. And and you can see this being a, an example of where a toy came along, and now in this niche, in this one market, is really sort of becoming a a, a meaningful competitor. It's so hard, like, and again, one of the things we've touched on, it is so hard to maintain dominance across successive paradigms. It's almost, uh, I mean, you saw it with Microsoft. Microsoft saw mobile coming. They were early on to Windows Mobile, but they they were so tethered in the way they made money and how they saw the world from the existing paradigm that they can't bring themselves to to untether them, uh, untether themselves from that paradigm. And it was actually ironically part of Apple's advantage with the phone. Like they were, they, they effectively lost the PC era. They were like, let's approach this from a fresh sheet. And that's kind of what you saw with Amazon. And it's, it's also when you think about it from playing to strengths of the respective organizations, like, uh, intelligent AI, uh, voice assistants, all that kind of technology plays much more strongly into the internet services companies like Amazon and Google than it does to Apple. That's exactly right. In the same way that Apple's focus on the user experience and on the end user was perfect for phones, right? Apple's always been a personal computer company. And as the computer became ever more personal, their advantages increased. But in this voice area, because that it matters so much, the server component and, and the way you build those sort of components, the way you think about them is so different in a way that, you know, I've written about, we've discussed previously. It's, it's the exact thing happening to them in reverse. 
Yeah, I mean, you talk about response time of user interface being critical on the phone. It's no different with voice. One of the things that Bezos really pushed with the Echo, I remember reading about the history of how it was developed, was a very low latency in terms of understanding and then responding. Because if you leave a user hanging there after they've issued a command, they're not sure whether they whether the the device heard them and or and understood or didn't understand or didn't even hear them at all and you start to feel like an idiot and you only need that to happen a couple of times before you're not even going to bother you'll just pick up your phone it's such a great it's, it's such a great connection to make because i have been hammering this i hate when people compare siri and alexa by comparing their their the accuracy of their responses like oh i asked about what time is the world series game and alexa said this and Siri said that that is so that's that's so unimportant that's like that could be like some programmer could go in there and fix that overnight it's not it's not the issue the issue and what these services should be compared on is speed and accuracy and and if you do this sort of comparison like alexa and and google blow siri out of the water on these metrics and the reason it matters is to your exact point yeah it's really easy to post a tweet showing like two responses and which one got it right and which one didn't it's a lot harder to articulate the fact that i feel an immediacy with alexa that makes me want to use it more that i don't feel a siri or i feel an accurate with Google with Google transcription that I feel very frustrated with Siri that I'm always having having to fix stuff like that's a lot harder to articulate and measure but it's, it's way more important to whether I actually use the product or not yeah I mean and you start to see how as these things gain intelligence how the traditional advantages that Apple have had such as the user interface the physical user interface become less and less important and yeah there's I mean hardware's still important like the array of microphones inside of an echo is is phenomenal and what they've been able to do and their ability to pick me up pick my voice up in the next room while the music's playing and and whatever it's it's remarkable but it's it's the nature of that hardware is very different from the nature of the hardware that apple's building inside the iphone where it's all about the delight of holding it in your hand and the importance starts to shift to something else which is the software and the cloud services that apple don't necessarily have an advantage in well, this is why it's so interesting because I think you touched on important points. To say just hardware is not enough because yeah. you're right. Like the, the the Alexa, you know, ugly as they may be, is is the hardware is perfectly acceptable. It, and it's the it's what you actually interface with. It's it's mm-hmm. so in the terms of Alexa, the hardware that actually matters is the servers because that's what you're interfacing with. With Apple, the hardware that matters is is that screen. It's like it's what you're actually touching, or you know, to this extent, you know, the the the, the front facing camera or or, or you know, whatever it might be, and this is kind of the question that this whole article hangs on because we just spent all this time praising uh, you know Amazon and Google being better and Amazon really seizing this opportunity in the home which again is it, it's such it, 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 it's really impressive how they've done it it's a great alignment with Amazon because so much of the Amazon sort of activity economic activity is centered around the home whether it be buying toothpaste or buying paper towels mm. or or whatever it might be and so it's it's a really great thing that they've done but at the same time even at home your phone's in your hand or stay on the couch an awful lot and there's still you know the entire rest of your life whether it be in the house in your bedroom or in the toilet or whatever it might be or or when you're outside on the bus at work wherever you may go that smartphone the it's still with you so much and the i guess the it's almost a question what is the gap where you you go from a her scenario where it's nothing but voice to a scenario where it's sort of mixed, where you have phone and voice to, you know, where, where it's just phone one, 
where are we on that gradient? And, and, and two, is there like a tipping point where you just go from one to the to, to, to the other? And, and if you if you step back, and this is where it's kind of your point, all the context is really really important. Mm. The theoretical idea that at some point the Google Assistant is going to become so superior to Siri mm-hmm. that you will switch to Android th- that presumes a sort of binariness in this decision that I don't think is actually present in the market. No, I mean it's definitely not present yet. I I w- would absolutely agree with that. Um, the The question is like, are there going to be are there going to continue to be enough innovations on the phone that enough people want and that that solve the problems that people face every day that the phone remains the ideal device in which to, to f- for them to interact with what they need to do. Or is it going to start to shift? And is it also going to be the case that the what the phone that like the expense of the phone leaves open something in the low end for someone to come along? And maybe it's a very simple watch or watch paired with earphones that replicate some of what Apple's managed to do with their watch and their AirPods. And the phone isn't necessary anymore, where there's some pretty cool stuff that you can do with just a watch and earpods that AirPods that that uh, that uh, using AI services from the likes of Google or or something like that, and I I can see that coming in the same way that I think Microsoft probably could see mobile being a really big thing. Now we're certainly not there yet, and how far away we are, really good question, probably a multi multi billion dollar question. But you can kind of see that coming over the horizon, and it's going to get there sooner or later. Maybe. I mean, here's here's the thing. It's one of those things you said, it's coming over the horizon. You can see how we can get there. We can get there. What's an objection I raise to these? You can see the future sort mm. of scenarios all the time. It's how do we get from here to there? Mm-hmm. So uh, how, let's, to take an example, you put forward a scenario where you have a watch and, and headphones and, that, mm-hmm. and you have that assistant with you all the time, right? Yep. Well, how do you actually get to the watch and headphones? Well, that can't, by definition, cannot be simultaneous with the watch being cheaper than an iPhone, undercutting Apple in price. The, the level of technology that would be necessary to get there, one, Apple's going to get there first. They're so, like, they're so, well, you just look at the watches, look at the sizes of the Apple Watch relative to the competition and it, its capabilities, and particularly the LTE ones. Like, like Samsung and LG have LTE watches and they're by volume like twice the size of, of an Apple Watch or something to that extent. Apple is so good at this point at that sort of stuff and they have so much leverage in their in their cost structure by leverage i mean the, the, their volumes are so great and their their processes are so ahead that they can just produce like apple is, is in a situation where they sell stuff for the for the highest price and they also have the lowest cost structure relative to the the cost of their mm-hmm. components and, and so they have a cost advantage they have a a sort of like capability advantage they are going to be selling a f- watch and head and airpods far before the competition is. In fact, they already are, which mm-hmm. means all these high-end customers that are Apple's best customers are going to be making purchases. They're going to be buying watches. They're going to be buying AirPods. And is it great with Siri? No, it's actually probably, relatively speaking, to be pretty crappy. I don't have an LTE watch yet, but but is it would it be better if it could be Google Assist on there? I'm almost certain it would be. 
But if you've already made the investment in buying a watch, in buying AirPods, and app Siri is slowly but surely, or maybe mm-hmm. not surely, but it's getting a little bit better. And oh, by the way, you can get Google email on your phone, you get Google Maps on your phone, and yeah, it's not the default, and it's kind of a pain and annoying, but it's there. And Google stuff's really good. I have Google Maps in my dock on my phone. I use it all the time. It's phenomenal. Works really great in Taiwan. Apple Maps is not great in Taiwan. Uh, <laughs> but I mean... Would it be great if, if Android was all built in, it was all seamless? It is. I, I, like I said, I, buy, I get an Android phone every year, and that's always my favorite thing. When I set it up and everything's there, and it all works together, and that aspect of the services, and all, like my entire life is all in the cloud. It's something that, that's important to me in, in mm-hmm. computing. Like I want to be able to be, at any time, if I lose all my hardware, I want to be able to just walk into a store, buy all new hardware, and be up and running immediately. So I'm actually mm-hmm. I'm very cognizant about that. And from that perspective, an Android phone is actually much better. But then, you know, after a little bit, I run into the same sort of frustrations that I have and, and irritations, and it's different. And it's different. And, like, maybe that's a dumb thing that I don't want to go to the trouble of really learning something that, that's different. But it's a very real thing to a lot of people who already have iPhones and years of experience with Apple. And, and what I mean is the delta of improvement, the degree to which Google Assistant has to be superior mm-hmm. to Siri – is is way 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 larger than you would if you just compare the two side by side. Totally, there's nothing in what you just said that I'm able to disagree with. I guess the way that I would paint it is that if if someone's going to do something like this, they are not going to go head on against what Apple has done. Like they, if it's going to be a watch, it's not going to have a full LTE uh, connectivity. It Why? might not even. How, how's it gonna, how's it going to be an so maybe assistance it, if it doesn't have LTE well, connectivity? Well, maybe in the same way that when the iPhone launched, it didn't. It, it launched on two G. Maybe it's not going to have a screen. They're going to pull no, things I, I think, out. No, I think you're falling. I think you're falling into the details here. Right? At the end of the day, Apple took on Microsoft, which I think this was your, your strongest point you made. And by the way, I, I, the reason I'm being really aggressive arguing with you is because I like 49 percent agree with you. And so, like I told you, I'm, I'm kind of on the nice edge here. So I, I'm really. I just realized I'm falling into that. I'm being really aggressive here, but it's because I, I, I'm really curious about this question. So. I'm really trying to to push through and work it out. So sorry if I treat you. Oh a no 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 no! I I just I, and and like the pushback is good, but I just think that that if you for for all the reasons you described in terms of yes they have the best margins but also the best cost structure. If you go directly at Apple trying to recreate a product that has the same functionality, you're never going to win. But if you if your starting point is non-consumption, if your starting point is maybe it's maybe it's for tra- people who want to travel and just want access. To to a translation service you don't need a screen you can just talk to it and it, it like will p- play in a headphone and you, maybe it's not even a watch maybe it's a little box or something i don't know what it looks like it's not if it looks exactly the same as the watch in the airpods for all the reasons you just described you're doomed but the advantage of the, these artificial intelligence this is the same reason google is going to have trouble with its ad services model because like the ads on the web require you to to ch- make a choice require you to click and that requires a screen and that's how they make money off different advertisers by pushing them up and pushing them down but if you have an artificial in, uh, an ai that is able to talk to you and get you the best answer get you the right answer 
For example, you don't need a screen. That's one thing that potentially you could take out and again, lowers your cost structure, is an, is an avenue for competing on the low end in such a way that for people who don't have access to the best phone is delightful. That's how I think it will happen. Uh, yeah, but but you, you again here to there, like, and this is why I would go back to the to the phone thing. What was interesting about the phone did disrupt the PC, and what's interesting is Microsoft did see the phone coming. So according to what you just articulated, oh, if 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 the if the incumbent is in there, like you're, it's not going to happen. It did happen via the phone, despite the fact. Microsoft was in there, and 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 the reason it happened was because the the, the iPhone started with completely new assumptions. It didn't start mm-hmm. with a PC sort of interface and framework and, and assumptions, all those sorts of things. It started with something new that was inherent to t- inherently built for for touch and for for mobile being with you all the time. Mm-hmm. And, but the key thing, the other key factor is you could use the phone in so many more places than you could use a PC. And that gave space for there to be a sort of fresh level of competition. And I think what makes the smartphone far more challenging to disrupt than the PC was is that the smartphone is already with you everywhere. And maybe the one spot where it isn't is that home situation. And and and, and, and you can see, like, all, the theory is right. The theory is playing out in the home. But – you can understand why that is a small niche that is kind of a separate one, and it's very impressive that Amazon has carved out this space. Mm. But at the end of the day, the phone is with you every single other part of your life. And to Apple's tremendous credit, I wrote this a year ago, push those AirPods and immediately the first day, even though the watch wasn't cellular yet, from the first day it paired with the watch. And they were – and I wrote about this that week. They are barreling towards this future where you don't even need your smartphone with you and they're putting their products there. And is that Microsoft barreling ahead to smartphones? Perhaps, perhaps. But when you remember the way this is all tied in with Apple and the smartphone is so omnipresent, I just think that that scenario of having a sideways route in – is 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 a lot less clear than it was in the case of the smartphone. I mean, you it's you, what you say is compelling, but in the same way that Microsoft saw the phone coming and built a phone, I would say Apple sees the watch coming and built a watch, but they in the same way Microsoft built the phone the their phone around PC era assumptions. Yeah, I I I grant you that Apple with the LTE um, with LTE has started to uh, take out the assumption of the phone always being present. But the use case that they've built it around is not one of artificial intelligence and being able to talk to a device and getting intelligent answers. Like the primary thing that they're building it around is, is health, like health and wellness. And I don't think that is the most compelling use case for the device. I also don't think for the most compelling use cases for those devices, it actually is going to need a screen. It, it is going to be an audio device. And maybe maybe between the AirPods and the watch, that's enough for, for most people. But you look at the watch sales, the number of people who own a watch and AirPods, that's probably a very tiny fraction of the market. And I think there right, is a- Right, don't, but don't take, don't take the market as a whole, remember? It, it, it's, of Apple's, course. It's, Apple, it's Apple's core customers, which are the, the, the top end slice of the market. That's true, but they demand great performance. And if someone's able to deliver a product built around an assumption of artificial intelligence that doesn't need a screen, it's not going to be very long before you start to chip away at at 
the the watch being the best product with the best experience because the experience the experience the overall experience of it just working of course is incredible but it's also the experience in the context of getting a job done and if you're able to ask this device anything from like translate something to me for me or when's the next flight to wherever or whatever it might be and you don't need a screen like it's able to answer as intelligently as a phenomenal human human assistant i could start to see that being a basis on which someone could build a product and compete with the whole ecosystem that Apple has built around the watch and the AirPods and the phone. So I completely agree with you. And, and, and this is sort of the rub I was trying to get at in the article. I'm not sure how successful I was, but this was the point I was trying to draw. The theory is sound. And when and if the Apple ecosystem is disrupted, this is how I believe it will happen. And, and for all the reasons we've talked about in the past, whether it be organizational structure, incentives, the way the way mm. they build products, I think it's inevitable. It's already the case. And I think the difference between – and we'll just use Google as a stand for Alexa or whoever it might be. The difference mm. between Google with this voice stuff and Apple – is large and it's going to get larger. I, I think. I, mm. I, I think that. I just think that if you look at how everything's going on, that's what's going to happen. Yes. And so, f- in theory, and this is, but this is the point I made about th- how theory and reality sometimes diverge or they, or they go a long time. In theory, Google is going to have a superior product according to this new axis of performance. This new mm-hmm. axis of performance. Yeah. Uh, this new axis of performance that matters, which is voice and its responsiveness and its intelligence. And it's going to be better than Apple. And I guess the the only point that I was trying to make in this article is Apple is it, is it's so easy to fall into it being a binary comparison. Like you're going to be one and you're going to switch to the other. When in reality Apple is building this up. There's just the inherent switching costs, the switching ecosystems. There's the trial. Like if once you buy an iPhone, are you going to actually buy an Android phone or, or, or a, a watch or whatever it might be? Like you have to actually try the other one out to know it's actually better. If you're to just buy sight unseen means it has to be so much better that sort of like the, the general clamor about it being better is so overwhelming. It kind of breaks through the status quo. It, there has to be a price advantage. You know, Apple has a price advantage. And so either you're going to buy crappier hardware or to get similar hardware, it's going to be just as expensive, if not more. And at the same time, given the economic incentives of a company like Google, which is incentivized to put its product on the iPhone and put its product to the best possible user experience that it can, even like the even that advantage is blunted because is using Google Maps on an iPhone as good as using Google Maps on Android? No, it's not because it's not the default. But it's still better than not having any Google Maps at all, right? If Google really wanted to do this, they would withdraw all their services from the iPhone and only have it on Android. But for reasons we've discussed a, a, a ton, one of the initial things I talked about on Shashekri, like one of my big things the first year was how badly Google erred by favoring Android with their services because it was the tail wagging the dog. They were a services company that was cutting off their nose because it, it, that being their best customers in order to prop up a division that made no money and yeah. and, and that's just not going to happen when you consider all these different things it goes back to an article i wrote back in august which is apple and the oak tree and it, i was kind of saying i actually kind of forgot what the article when i wrote this but it was the idea was like apple i think it captures it though apple is i think far stronger than the a simple examination of theory without context would have you understand. Now that does that, that means that when and if they collapse, it's going to be a, a huge collapse because that's that that's the whole parable, right? When the hurricane came, the oak tree collapsed and the reed was still standing. But but it doesn't mean that they're not still really 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 strong. 
more than theory might suggest they are. Oh, I totally agree. I guess I guess the distinction that I would draw between what I was saying and your response just then is I in the same way that Microsoft and Intel went on to dominate the PC era, I think Apple's Apple's position in the smartphone in in the smartphone wars is cemented and they are going to continue to make a lot of money. I guess my question my question is around whether the watch ends up being the dominant product. For example, if we move into a world of wearables, whether the watch ends up being the dominant product. Because back before the iPhone launched, it looked like Microsoft had dominant market share in terms of uh, Windows Mobile being like in the, the, the smartphone OS of choice. M- most people had them. The point of Android was not to compete with Apple. The point of Android was to prevent Microsoft from shutting Google out of mobile. Right. And I I just think that I maintain that even with the decision to do LTE uh, in the phone in the in the watch and maybe remove the need for the phone, which is a good sign. That's a sign that Apple's not only thinking about this next paradigm in terms of making more money on the last one. I still don't think it's going to be enough because what will what will tr- truly be the killer use cases for these wearable devices? I don't think it's going to require a screen. I think it's going to be the AI stuff that we've talked about, and I just don't think Apple's going to. I mean, a they've already approached it from a different angle, which is the health angle. And B, I just don't think they're well positioned from an organizational structure to get to, to, to take advantage of that. You know, what's funny, we're, we're, I don't know if you're aware of it, we're totally going in circles here in that you just repeated my argument back at me, which was came from my repeating your argument back at you. Like, <laughs> and this is the whole, this, this is kind of the crux of it, right? We, mm. I think we both understand the theory, and we believe the theory Mm. will apply to Apple. Apple will be disrupted. Mm -hmm. And I think we both also agree that the means of disruption will be these pure voice interfaces. Mm -hmm. And I think the question, and this is always the question when it comes to evaluating companies, is, I mean, you could back up in the full scale of time, all companies are going to die. All products are going to go away, right? The question is timing. What is the timing? And, And so to say that Apple is going to be disrupted by voice Okay, I agree. Mm-hmm. Is that in five years or is that in fifteen years? That's a pretty important distinction. No, I, I agree, and I, I guess to add to it though, and to go right back to the start, the the thing that the thing that makes me more confident that it will happen is that Apple's. Like, like the characterization of the watch as something that enables them to make more money out of their phone customers, as opposed to the characterization of the watch enabling them to go after a whole new series of customers that aren't engaged in the ecosystem at all. I successfully managed to dodge your question around timing because <laughs> well I, done, I, I, well done. Knew, yeah, I, if I knew the answer to that, I, I mean, like, you would, we, we, you, again, you be recording a podcast with be, me right now. <laughs> that's right. We'd be like our finance reporters from last week, which is like, yeah, it's like so obvious in retrospect, like the, what happened on the markets today, and it's like I knew this all along. I'm not going to claim to be able to accurately predict it. I, I like it, it would be foolish for me to try. And, and that was, I think that was that was sort of what I was trying to get at here. And this is where the iPhone X does come in. I mean, I, the, the, I, f- I found the iPhone X to be a revelatory product. And revelatory in that I find it far more flawed than the iPhone 7, yet far more delightful to use. And, and, and mm-hmm. what's so striking is a, it's a reminder. I almost forgot this because the last few iPhones is almost getting, I don't know, dare I say boring? <laughs> mm. but, but there's this aspect where it's the delight makes the flaws not matter. 
Mm-hmm. And that that's the key to sort of like building these sort of products. And it's such a hard balance. It's hard to do delight. Look at like look at Siri. Siri is so freaking annoying when the, like Siri will screw up a timer, right? You'll say Siri, turn off that timer. Okay, but don't forget. It's like like I want to throw my phone against the wall. And it's a visceral reaction. It's not a it's mm-hmm. not a cognitive like mental high level reaction it's a like it, it's the opposite of delight it's disgust it, it, it is disgust is what like siri frequently inspires disgust and why does it inspire disgust it's not by getting it wrong it's by siri's failed attempt to delight right and that's why delight is that's why most companies don't pursue delight it, it's really yeah. really hard to pull off if the iphone 10 did not have that perfect sort of response to touch the interface would inspire disgust. It would be so frustrating mm. to use. And, and and what was striking to me is, you know, it really struck me. Apple still has it. They still have yeah. that capability to inspire delight. Mm-hmm. And this phone, not to sound like a fanboy, but it, it, it is is it is delightful in a way an iPhone has not been in a very very long time. Yeah, this, I I know that's it's such a good articulation of it too. This is this is the reason why as a kid I used to sit up and watch the keynotes for exactly getting at that. And as a product line matures or a category matures, the opportunity to do this becomes less and less. And like you said, the phones the last little while are these they've been more along the lines of feeds and speeds type upgrades and they're necessary and they move us forward. But it's not the same thing as a completely new, uh, imagining a completely new way of interfacing with the device that everybody carries around with them and everybody's been using for the better part of 10 years and they managed to come at it and completely change it and it feels fantastic. And yeah, you're right. There are still elements of it that need that, that are a little frustrating, but I think Apple is at its best when it's pushing the envelope in this way and the delight. Yeah. You can't, you can't get there without making some things frustrating, but the delight completely overwhelms it. And it's just a fantastic product it, to use. It, it, re- it really is. And, and I think you, you can understand more. And I talked about this with Gruber, but you can understand more about why they watch the iPhone 8 alongside of it because Apple's market now is so large that they not only have the sort of early adopters part of the market, but if you think sort of crossing the chasm framework, they have all those sort of late adopters who who buy an mm. iPhone not because it's cutting edge, they buy an iPhone because it does, it works well. They just want a phone that, mm. that doesn't break, that doesn't bother them, that doesn't cause problems, right? And if you're that sort of customer, you should absolutely buy an iPhone 8. It works exactly the way you're used to. It's super reliable. It's The, the, the technology is almost all the same as the iPhone 10. The the iPhone 10 has a learning curve. It, it absolutely does. And in that respect, I think the dual strategy actually makes a lot more sense than, than you know, once you actually use the 10, I think you can appreciate the dual launch uh, much more than just sort of you could from the keynote itself. Yeah, I, it's it's funny. Like I didn't um, I didn't quite appreciate how much I would appreciate it until I used it. It looked cool. And I was like, okay, this is what they're characterizing as the future. I want to try it. But it wasn't until I got it. And it, now I just, it's still fun to pick it up and look at the thing and see the goddamn lock move without you actually <laughs> yeah. doing you know, it. By the way, the carriers of the future is still ridiculous. The future is still the LTE watch. Like that, that again, mm. to your point, Apple may not win that future, but that mm. is like, that's, that's the future. Uh, but you know, this is, this is good. I, I, I'm glad we had this. I know we, we actually got into it more than usual. And I think we did in part because, like, like I said, I, I, the theory, I, I, th- I believe the theory is right. And 
but the reality makes it makes it messy and and the, just the nature Always. of the smartphone market in particular it's just that omnipresence right apple by virtue of controlling the smartphone for the high end of the market is so everywhere that it's so much harder to find that space to break in it, it, you, know, you know what i mean and, and whereas the yeah. pc the desk the ultimate reason why the pc got disrupted was that it was the desk. It only went as far as the edge of the desk. And that left so much space in day-to-day life for a new product to break in, right? And that amount of space is is so dramatically shrunken in terms of the smartphone. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically that that use case that you described for the watch, which is it's still friction to pull the thing out of your pocket to use it. I, I think it's not going to be that friction that causes the next thing to come along. It's going to be the ability to serve something that Apple is just fundamentally incapable of doing in their own ecosystem because of the nature of right, their Right, but that's the thing. To, to win, to win based on being superior is mm. is in, a, in an inevitable sort of head-to-head competition. That's my point. It's so much more difficult. Like I, mm-hmm. I do think in the very long run that will probably play out, but head-to-head competition is far, far, far more difficult than coming into the side the way Apple did with the phone. The phone worked fine with your Windows PC. It worked alongside of it. If you are a product that comes in alongside the dominant product, that gives you a huge amount of runway where the phone could build up, build up, build up, and boom, just wash over the PC. But that was because it had years of buildup before the PC only decreased in usage again like a year or two ago. It, 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 after eight or nine years of the smartphone. In this case, because the smartphone's with you everywhere, you have to take Apple on head-on. And taking on the incumbent head-on is really, really hard. Even though, even if you do, if you're as big as Google, even if you do have the inherent sort of advantages in this new space, head-on is hard. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a meta point here too, which is the the understanding the theory is incredibly valuable and how to apply it. But there's also understanding the context in which you're applying the theory and understanding the dynamics of the market. And both end up being as important as each other and they allow you some ability to predict the future but you get either piece of that wrong and you'll be way off base and that's i mean that's why i love having these conversations with you because there's an element of like we get the theory now we also get the the context let's let's put them together and see where we end up yep it's very i I had this line in this article it's very easy to be right in theory and wrong in reality and and if you don't consider context if you just get stuck on the theory that's exactly what happens yeah and that's it was it's always fun talking about this stuff so we had a funny thing happen, by the way. We used our we used our iTunes commenter as a sort of as sort of a, a hook and intro to get into our topic last week, which again we, we'd already decided the topic before we even knew about the comment for for the record. Mm. But I did the commenter say, "Oh, I, I don't want to listen to this anymore." They're all the same thing as before. Immediately after we posted the episode, like an hour later, he's on Twitter, like, "Oh, I'm glad I could be in your episode." I'm like, "I thought you weren't listening anymore." Uh, do you know what's even funnier? I went back and looked at the iTunes ratings to see whether anyone might have left new ones. And he updated the rating from three stars to four stars. So he really was listening. <laughs> yeah, I think he's gonna like this one. This is like old school exponent, exponent. And so, so d- dear, dear commenter, here's here's an episode just for you. Maybe maybe you'll bump it up to five stars. <laughs> like that's right. Mentions in a row. We we we, we want that star. Who knew who knew we could be so easily controlled? <laughs> yeah, that's right. All about incentives. That's right. right that's right. Oh, it sounds good. I will talk to you next week. See you, mate. Bye. Bye.